0: You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. I'm going to preach a sermon here. You know, last week we talked about communion. Now, let me first say, uh, if you weren't here, if you didn't hear that sermon, I want you to go back and listen to the podcast of that sermon. Our stream wasn't up and running last week because our internet was down. Now it's, now it's up. But, um, but we have the podcast from last Sunday morning. And, and even if you were here Saturday night, it would really bless my heart if you go back and listen to the Sunday morning version of that sermon. When I got home Saturday night, I was like, man, I just don't think... I was clear enough. I think it just did not land the way I planned it, and so I went to work on my sermon Saturday night, kind of took some things out, added some things, smoothed it out, and when I preached it Sunday morning, I was like, that's what I'm after. I felt like it landed so much cleaner on Sunday, so if you left Saturday night kind of stumped, like what in the world was that man saying? that was as confusing as can be, go back and listen to the podcast. Hopefully, that'll clear up uh, our, the sermon subject on communion. But we talked about communion last weekend being a sacrament. And we talked about what does that word sacrament mean? And it comes from a phrase combining two words from two languages, Latin and Greek. It comes from the phrase sacro-mysterion. sacro, mysterion. sacro Mysterion, which means sacred mystery. Sacred is that which pertains to the divine, and mystery is that which we cannot fully explain. So if you put all that together, what is a sacrament? A sacrament is something that connects us to God in a way that we just cannot fully explain. And in the end, Christianity itself is a confession. It's not an explanation. Of course, we attempt to explain what we can, but we always end up confessing more than we can explain. And so communion is a sacrament. It's not merely symbolic. And at the same time, we don't want to over explain how it connects us to God because we get off track. I hope that was clear from last week. What What we're not wanting to do is try to conceptualize in our mind how the bread and wine of communion literally turns into the The body and blood of Christ. We we deny that. We reject that. And at the same time, we confess what the church, for its two thousand years history, has almost without exception, until modern times, always confessed, including the Protestant reformers. And that is Christ is present. We are truly encountering Jesus in communion. It's not merely symbol. It's a sacramental connection with the very presence of Christ. Now there are two sacraments that are universally recognized in the historic and global Church of Jesus Christ, and that is communion and water baptism. And so today, I want to talk to you a little bit about water baptism. Now, the sermon itself is not specifically or exclusively about water baptism, but it's going to connect in a very cool way. Like, I'm excited about this sermon. I'm excited about this one. The title of it is A Portal into the Future. And our text is going to come from the same passage that we looked at last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And he says this in verse 11. These things happened to them to serve as an example, and they were written down to instruct us on whom the ends of the ages have come. Amen. Amen. Now, the Christian faith is not a philosophy. And the Christian faith is not a theology. Now, of course, you can derive philosophy and theology from Christianity. Of course, you should. But in its essence, that's not what Christianity is. It's not a philosophy. It's not a theology. It's actually a story. It's a big story. The fancy term for that is metanarrative. It's this huge overarching story that encompasses all of human history in a way that allows us to understand it. You know, if you just look at the long saga of human history on your own and try to make sense of it, you probably won't make heads or tails of it. You'll probably consider all of that and say, man, what is going on? Who are we? Like, why are we here? What is this all about? And Christianity comes along and says, here's what's happening. Here's what this is about. And Christianity tells you the story that the Bible tells us, the story of how the world has gone wrong. God's creation and humanity itself We're not the way that we ought to be. Something's broken. It's damaged. It's, it's in disrepair. But it's the story about how God has intervened In the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, and through His Son, He's going to make all things right again. He's going to restore all things. And you and I are not merely spectators. We're invited to become participants in what the living Christ is doing, the crucified, resurrected, ascended Lord of all. He's the Lord of history. And we get to be part of this reclamation project that points forward to a future when everything's going to be made right. That's the story that Christianity gives you that helps you make sense of things. And it's pointing ahead to the future. And you see throughout the New Testament different terms that are used to describe this future that's coming. Peter says this in the book of Acts. He calls it the restoration of all things. The Apostle Paul uses the language of new creation. The, the revelator John, he uses the term or the image of the new Jerusalem. But they're all talking about the same concept that somewhere in the future, there's coming a time, God's going to take this broken, shattered world, He's going to put it all back together and again and make it look like it's supposed to look for all of eternity. Amen. And you see, this is what... Paul is talking about in this verse when he says that we are those on whom the ends of the ages have come. I want to show you a diagram on the screen, and we're going to keep it up for a few minutes. I've used a version of this in some previous sermons, and every so often I'm going to bring it back to your memory because I, I want you to remember this diagram. But you see, the ancient Jewish people They understood that all of human history is divided into two ages. On one hand, there is the age of darkness, this present age, the age of sin and death, the age of darkness. We can call it by a bunch of terms, but basically it's the age where things are wrong, where things are messed up. How many of you know the world's messed up? Right? We're living in the age of darkness, the age of sin and death, the age of brokenness, all of those kinds of things. So there's this present age, but the Jewish people also understood that there's also an age to come. There's an age of new creation, an age of resurrection, when all's going to be made right for all of eternity. And so the way that the Jewish people understood this is that these two ages, not only do they divide human history, but the way they in imagined it is that they butt up against one another. But the early Christians, the earliest Christians, who, of course, were all Jews at the very beginning, in the years following Jesus's resurrection, as they were working together to understand the meaning of Jesus's life, teachings, death and resurrection, they made a discovery and they realized that these two ages actually overlap, that they don't butt up against one another, But actually, there's a period of overlap. There's a period of time where this present age of sin and darkness and death and and destruction and all of that, where it actually coexists with the age to come. That when Jesus came, he announced that a new age has come. The kingdom of God is right in front of your face. It's in your midst. He lived it. He taught it. And then he modeled it on the cross and then he inaugurated it with his resurrection and that he's ascended to the father's right hand where he is presently ruling and reigning over the heavens and the earth so the early christians began to realize that these two ages overlap they actually coexist and this period of overlap has a term that the new testament refers to it by it's called the last days now i want to clear up some confusion that you might have. The last days in the New Testament is a term that Peter and Paul both use to refer to the time following Jesus' resurrection. According to Peter and Paul, the last days actually began with Jesus' resurrection. So if occasionally people ask me, in fact, all the time, compulsively people ask me, Ryan, do you think we're in the last days? And I can tell you definitively, without any shadow of a doubt, yes, we're in the last days. Because the last days began 2,000 years ago. Yes, we're living in the last days, according to the way the New Testament uses the term. Now, I think what people mean when they ask me that is, are we living in the last of the last days? And to that question, I have no response. I have no opinion. I think it's possible we're living in the very last of the last days. I also think it's possible that we're still the early church. (laughs) And we're still on the front end of this thing. That's got a long way to go. Who knows? But what I want you to know for tonight's purpose is that you and I, we're living in the overlap. That's where we're living right now. in in the story of human history. We're living during a time where on one hand, things are still messed up, things are broken, things are not the way God would have it to be. We're living in the age of sin and death, but at the same time, because Jesus is crucified and risen and ascended to the Father's right hand, the kingdom of God is also present in our midst and we can participate in the age to come even right now. We're living in the overlap. Another way to think about it, and this is also a New Testament metaphor, is we're living in the dawn of new creation. This morning, according to my phone, the sun rose, the point of sunrise here in Los Angeles was at 6.50 a.m. That's what time the sun creeped up over the San Gabriel Mountains this morning, 6.50 a.m. And if you were to walk outside during that little interval of time, on one hand, you could say, you know what? It's still dark outside. It's still, you can even say it's still nighttime. You know, it's dark. But at the same time, the sun has already begun to rise and it's getting brighter and brighter. So at 6.50 a.m., you walking out of your house, you're kind of at a loss. Is it nighttime or is it daytime? It's kind of in the middle. We're kind of in the dawn of a new day, even though it's still dark. That's precisely what I'm talking about. And that's what the New Testament writers help us understand, is that we're living at a time where the age of darkness, even though it's still here, it's fading. And it's going to come to an end. Why? Because the sun has risen. And I mean that by every pun possible. The sun, S-U-N, and the S-O-N, sun. The sun has risen, and someday his light is going to fill the entire cosmos for all of eternity. So we're living in the dawn Of new creation we're living in the overlap amen now with that in place now let me take you where I really want to go according to the Apostle Paul we who are in Christ to a certain extent we have already entered into the age to come now not fully of course because we're not in our resurrected bodies yet every morning when I wake up my joints hurt you know (laughs) That's a reminder that I'm not in my resurrected, glorified body. My body's still subject to decay and, and perhaps one day death unless Jesus returns. Lord, please come quickly. <laughs> but we're so 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 we haven't fully entered into the age to come, but Paul makes it clear it's it isn't as though we haven't entered into it either. That's what he's getting at, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5.17. And and here's, I think, the best translation I could find of this verse. Because most of the time when we quote this verse, it goes something like, uh, Behold, anyone who's in Christ, uh, he is a new creation. Old things pass away, all things become new. But actually, the term he is is not in the Greek. This is actually a really good rendering of what it's saying in the Greek, according to the way that I've studied this. All that is in the Messiah is therefore the new creation. The old order has passed away to such. All that is in the Messiah is therefore the new creation. So in other words, when you and I pledge ourselves to Christ and we're placed in Christ, you are stepping into the age to come. You have stepped into a whole new world. In other words, you are now from the future. And we who are in Christ, we are people who belong to the future. We belong to the age age to come. That's our identity. That's our address. And what is water baptism? Water baptism is a portal into the future. Man, if people could just understand how wild and crazy this Christianity thing is. People say, you know, water baptism, that's when they dunk you in water, right? No, 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 no. It's a portal into the future. When we put that big old horse trough right here, and people get in and we place them in the water and we bring you know what's happening? That is a time machine into a new world. That's Marty McFly's DeLorean. That's Bill and Ted's phone booth. It's a time machine that takes you into a new world, it takes you into the future. So just like communion, water baptism is not just symbolic, it's a sacred portal. Sometimes we talk about baptism like, oh, it's just, you know, it's, it's a symbol of the death and resurrection and all of that. That's not the way the New Testament authors talk about baptism. Rather, baptism is actually a connection by faith and by sacrament with the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus in such a way that we actually become participants in his death and resurrection. That ought to put goosebumps on the back of your neck. That's awesome. So the baptized belong to the world to come. We belong to the future. And we have now a whole new identity. Think of it this way. Roughly 2,500 years ago, the ancient Israelites or the Hebrews are in bondage to the Egyptian empire where they've been in bondage for 400 years. They're slaves. They're oppressed people. And they cry out to God for deliverance, and God raises up a leader named Moses, and Moses leads them out of slavery in Egypt, and they go through what? The Red Sea on dry ground, but they go through the Red Sea. Centuries later, the Apostle Paul will point back to that story, and he'll use that as a metaphor for water baptism. The Red Sea was the demarcation point. For ancient Israel, that we no longer belong to that old world, that old life, that old identity. We're no longer slaves, but by crossing over the Red Sea, we're entering into a new identity, a new world where we end up finding a land that flows with milk and honey. That's what baptism is. Baptism gives you a new identity. You step into a whole new world, a new age called the Kingdom of Christ. And from that point on, our role is to, with God's help, live into our baptismal identity. In other words, because we belong to the new creation, because we belong to the age to come, more and more, by God's grace, our lives are to take on the characteristics of the age to come. When all is made right. Our lives and our relationships more and more should look like what human life and relationships will be when when God makes it all right. That's really the goal. So with that in mind, I want to give you this definition on the screen, this little sentence. not really a definition, but it'll it'll help you. And we'll leave it up uh, for about two or three minutes. Christian holiness is not based upon a certain set of rules, but on the fact that, that we are from another time. We'll keep that on the screen, and let me explain what I mean. Uh, The illustration I like to use is slavery. If you want to use the Bible in a paint-by-numbers kind of way, as a, a law book of divine edicts, then you can actually take the Bible and use it to support the institution of slavery. If you're creative enough, you can do it because there's not a single verse in the Old or New Testament that says anything like thou shalt not own slaves. There's no clear repudiation of slavery in the Bible. Now, of course, that's not what the Bible's for. That's not what the Bible wants to do. What the Bible is, is a story, an inspired story that points us to Jesus Christ, the living word, who gives us a new trajectory, here's what it looks like to be human, the way God intends. And the role of the Bible in that process is to train us how to think so that with renewed minds, we can now make wise decisions that are honoring of Christ and his vision, and in congruence with the life of the age to come. That's what the Bible wants you to do. It wants to point you to Jesus, and it wants to train you how to think so that you can live as one who embodies what it looks like in God's new world. But you see, 150 years ago, that's not what was happening in much of the United States. In the pre-abolition South in particular, there were a lot of pastors, a lot of churches, a lot of professing Christians who used the Bible to support the institution of slavery. And they could, they could throw a bunch of Bible verses at you. But what I'm trying to show you tonight is this. All they had to do to arrive at the right answer was to ask the question, where's this thing headed? In God's new creation, when all is made right, is slavery going to be maintained or is it going to be abolished? Because that's the age we belong to. You and I, as a, as a church, we're called to be A preview of what's to come. The world around us ought to be able to look at our community of faith and say, wow, that's what it's going to look like when things are made right one day. That's what the future is going to be like when, when it's all made right. Now, whether they can look at us and say that or not is another issue. But that's what we're called to. And that's what we should evaluate ourselves by. As people look at us, do they say, well, you know what? Those folks are pretty much exactly like us, except they get all religious on Sundays. Or are they able to look at us and say, man, those folks at Village, they're just different. Man, they just, like, think differently. They don't, they don't approach life the way we do. They evidently have values That causes them to live in a way that's just different from everybody else. These people are just different. They're other. That's what holiness is. Holiness doesn't mean good. Holiness is not about puritanical moralism or legalistic rule keeping. It's about living into the future by God's grace, embodying the age to come now in this present darkness. So that we can point people to the light that makes it all right. The Apostle Paul, he he talks about how the night, the darkness, the dark night is past and the day is at hand. So therefore, you might as well put away those deeds of darkness. That old life of immorality and greed and oppression and injustice all of those other things we who belong to the age to come we have to understand these things do not belong to the age to come so we with god's help are to be expelling those things out of our lives gradually more and more throughout our journey and at the same time as the apostle john tells us we're to put on the clothing of light and live according to that which is to come not that which is passing away. Because if we live according to that which is passing away, when he appears, we're going to be ashamed. So we need to be men and women who are ahead of our time and we see where this thing's going. And it takes some imagination, it takes uh, some spirit inspired vision. But we need to be asking and living in that question, anticipating where is this thing going when God restores all things? What is life going to look like? And by the help of the Holy Spirit, we imagine that, and as much as we can, we begin to live that out now and not just sit on our hands and say, well, someday God will work it all out, but I'm just going to live according to the way things are now. That's exactly what Paul is saying not to do. The drive... money, sex, and power is what runs the world. It's what runs this age of darkness. Money, sex, power. Money, sex, power. It's what fuels economies, societies, structures, politics. Money, sex, power is what rules the world. And most people just throw up their hands in despair and say, well, this is just the way things are. And we can try to constrain it, we can try to like keep it from getting too out of control, but this is just the way things are. this is the way things have to be right now. But not for you and me. If we've been baptized in Christ, we belong to the age to come. So we're called to be a prophetic witness of a future that's motivated by love because the future doesn't belong to greed. The future doesn't belong to domination. The future doesn't belong to immorality. The future belongs to love. Therefore, we who belong to that age are to be embracing that now by the power of God's Spirit. So that we can say to the world around us, come into our community and see a people who are actually not motivated by money, sex, and power, but are motivated by Calvary-formed love. Now, of course, we got to live up to that. But that's our high calling in Christ Jesus. And water baptism is the portal into that new life, that new world. So if you've not been water baptized, I want to tell you in the most strong, the strongest terms I can tell you, you need to be baptized. It's not optional. You need to be baptized. That's the portal. That's the sacramental connection that takes you into God's new age. And so be baptized. Repent and be baptized. And I'm of the opinion... I don't think I need to be making people wait for four or five months either once they've signed up. If you've signed up, I'm going to get right in touch with you and we're going to make it happen. Even if I've got to baptize you in the LA River. We won't. Yeah, I don't want you to get like a, a venereal disease or something. But, but we are going to make it happen because this is so important. So I want you to be baptized. Amen? Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.